Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's God's word. You may be seated. I think one of the most interesting ways to get to know somebody is to ask them about their pet peeves. Uh, Each of us have different things that annoy us and bother us and uh, different sort of things. And and it's not always the same for everybody, but we all have certain uh, pet peeves. And so I've been thinking about different things that that really annoy me and, and may annoy you, things that might drive you crazy. Like, doesn't it just drive you crazy when people text while they drive? I mean, you're just going, I can't believe you do that. It's like driving drunk, you're distracted, right? Is what you have to say really that important? Like, you can't just put it down for a second and drive. You got to be on the phone texting. Doesn't that drive you crazy? What about when kids, when when parents speak harshly to their kids? Or they snap at them, or they scold them in a kind of mean-spirited tone, and don't don't you just hate that? What about when people complain about the hot weather? Right, there's a lot of that coming, right? Man, it's hot out there. Yeah, moron, you live in Phoenix. <laughs> you chose to live here. You could be in Montana. You could be anywhere else, right? It, what are you complaining about? You know it's hot. Why are you complaining, right? Doesn't it, like, yeah, duh, it's hot. Or, or, or what about, you know, one thing that I know drives, drives some people crazy is, is when you see people that are spending money without thinking about it, right? We have a great model of this in our federal government, but you see people and they spend money and it's like, spend first, think about how to pay for it later. And it's just like, what are you doing? Right? Are you crazy? What, why do you do this? And you know what I really hate? I really hate when people are judgmental. <laughs> like when people are saying, I can't believe that you're like that. When people are intolerant of intolerance, I just hate that. I'm so intolerant of that. <laughs> well, all those examples things that I do. Some more than others are for sure things that I've done. And my guess is they're things that you've done. And isn't it interesting that the things that just rile us up about other people, the things that so frustrate us about other people are very often the very kinds of things that frustrate us about ourselves. They're often the very same things we do. The things that drive us crazy are things that we often condemn in other people. And this passage is going to tell us that God is going to deal with that seriously. Just to kind of get the context of this, in case you're just joining this series, uh, Romans 1 through 3 is the Apostle Paul laying out bad news. He's got incredible news coming. There's really great news. The the book of Romans has kind of a theme of salvation and rescue, and and there's incredible uh, depth and texture and 
an intensity to the amount of grace and love and good news that we're going to experience in this book. But first, you got to understand the bad news. And so that's what Paul has been laying out. And in chapter one, he laid out this bad news saying, there are a lot of people who just ignore and disregard God. Look at chapter one, verse 18. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And then get this phrase, this is key. So they are without excuse. Humanity, sinfully rebelling against God, suppressing the truth, not thankful, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, is without excuse. Humanity should know better because there are things about God that says through creation that can be known. And when we ignore that, we are without excuse. He goes on to describe this kind of sinful humanity that doesn't know God. And he describes it in verses 29 through 31 with this list of all kinds of sin filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. He talks about murder, deceit, gossip, slander, being boastful, being inventor of evil, faithless, fruitless, heartless, ruthless, all this, just, just this indictment on humanity. And we talked about that last week. We said this last week. If sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. This is the description of humanity. And some of you read something like that or heard a message like last week, and you just right away go, guilty? (laughs) Like, yep, that's me. I am in. I have sinned. Right? Some of you, one of the major things that is keeping you from feeling like you could have a relationship with God is you feel like, how could God ever forgive me? Like, if God really knows what I've done, could, it, could he ever forgive me? And so you're tempted to do a bunch of really good stuff to try to, like, you know, make atonement for yourself or sort of pay penance a little bit because you're not really sure that God could be that gracious because you know how guilty you are. But then there's another group. And this group hears all that stuff and thinks, man, I am glad I'm not like them. And what what Paul is warning us about here in this passage is that people that have that attitude are actually just as lost and deceived as people who know they're guilty. But they're in potentially an even more dangerous place because they don't even see it. See, you can be separated from God and distanced from God by your sin, but as John Gerstner says, the thing that really separates us from God is not so much our sin, but our damnable good works. Right? And so some people, not truly born again, not truly having a relationship with God, not truly a Christian, even if they would call themselves a Christian, some people imagine, I'm better, I'm okay. And Paul in this passage is going to confront those people. These are often some of the most religious people. Again, not truly Christians, but very religious, very traditional, very set into the the patterns, very moral, very good people. And Paul is going to say, watch out. Look out. Here's kind of the big idea of this passage that, that Paul, I think, is trying to get us to see, is that we judge others by their actions 
and ourselves by our intentions. And God is not fooled. We judge others by their actions. We see what they do. That's wrong. You shouldn't do that. We judge ourselves by our intentions. Well, I, you know, you, I had a good reason, and it's not really my fault. And if you understood, right, we, we judge them by their actions, ourselves by our intentions. And Paul's point here is God is not fooled. You might be fooled. You might be deceived. You might think that you have a real relationship with God and that you're going to heaven and that you're saved, and you might very well be deceived. We judge others by their actions, ourselves by our intentions, and God is not fooled. First, we judge others by their actions. You see this in verse 1 and verse 3. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. You're judging. Verse 3, he says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things? Yet do them yourself that you'll escape the judgment of God. So these are people who are, who are judging while doing the very things that they judge. Look, look again, sorry, I'm bouncing a little bit here, but look back at verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, you're the one judging, you practice the very same things. We judge others by their actions. This word judge, it's used in verse 1, it's used in verse 3. Judgment is a big theme of this verse, uh, used in verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 5. Judgment is kind of the big idea here in these verses, the big theme that jumps out. And, and to judge is to condemn. It's to evaluate and then decide. It's to evaluate and then conclude that they're wrong. Often it's concluding not just that they're wrong, but that you're right, that you're superior. That's often what it is. And so this has led some people to, to really wonder, is there ever an appropriate time to judge? If this is what judging is, if it's condemning other people and putting yourself above them, it, is there ever a time to judge? And so many non-Christians who don't know any parts of the Bible, there's one verse they know. Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. And they will be quick often to tell you, hey, 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 don't judge me. Little Tupac, only God can judge me. None of you got that, Okay. Judge not. Hey, judge not that you not be judged. Hey, I, who am I to judge? You do what's right for you. What's right for me is something else, but you're not in a place to judge. And, and this is Jesus who says this, right? So they'll say, didn't Jesus say, judge not that you be not judged? Did Jesus say that? Yeah, he said that. But what did he mean by that? Did, did Jesus mean that there's never a time to judge? Did Jesus mean that it's always wrong to evaluate, that it's always wrong to conclude that something is right or wrong? Is that what Paul means in this particular passage? Is, is Paul in saying that, that we're judge, you know, you're, you're judging people by their actions? You're judging. Is he saying that all judgment is always wrong? Is that what Paul and Jesus are saying? Well, to answer that question, and, and I, I want to take this little detour for a minute because it's connected to this passage. I want to I look at this passage in Matthew 7 because Jesus says this, judge not that you be not judged. But as with many verses that you don't initially understand, you've got to keep reading. Okay? And when you keep reading, here's what you see. Jesus says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. 
And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is saying, hey, be careful about judging. Because people will often, and then God will, off, will eventually give you the same standard that you gave to other people, which you rarely can live up to. So be careful. And then verse 3, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a, the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do you see what Jesus is saying? The tendency when we judge is to see the speck in that person's eye and miss the log in ours. Right? We want to put on our junior Holy Spirit badge and point out everybody's problem. And, well, you know, you're like this, and you're like this, and you're like this. And, and Jesus is saying, you see the speck, but you're missing the log. So is Jesus' answer? Therefore, never deal with your brother's speck. Never conclude that anything is right or wrong. Whatever is true for you is true for you. Just be nice. Right? That's how a lot of people want to think Jesus is. Is that what Jesus says? No. What Jesus says is the problem isn't in evaluating, and the problem isn't even in judging. The problem is you're worse than the p- person you're judging. And so therefore, verse 5, first take the log out of your eye and then deal with the speck. Unless you're willing to deal with your own self, you can't deal with someone else. You're just a hypocrite. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 talks about a very similar thing where he says people who are, are stuck in sin, who are caught in sin, should be restored by others in a spirit of gentleness. But watch out, lest you too be tempted. So the issue here is not evaluating Paul is not here saying it's wrong to make moral judgments. It's wrong to make moral conclusions. What Paul is saying is beware of the tendency in yourself to see and nitpick other people for the very things you're doing. That's the problem. That's when it's an issue. It's, it's writing others off. It's, it's the believing you're superior, not the making the judgment. And so he says, uh, therefore you have no excuse. You're doing the very same things. We judge others by their actions. We judge ourselves by our intentions. We don't seem to take our stuff very seriously. That's one of the other points Paul makes here. He says in verse 1, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In other words, if you use the rule that you used on them, on yourself, You'd be guilty. But you don't see it that way. That's why verse uh, 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Paul's saying, hey, hey, hey. It's right that you're saying what, you know, other, what, what all the sin listed in, verse, in chapter 1. It's right that you see that as wrong. That, that's an appropriate judgment. But don't you see that you do the same thing? Do you think that you're just going to get a pass? Right, and again, this, he's transitioning from talking about people who don't know the Lord, who are, who are bold in their sin, to talking to people who think they know the Lord, but don't, and think they're okay because of their moral standing. He's saying, you think you're in a better place? You think you're self-deceived. 
You don't see things as they are. That's why he says we have no excuse, verse 1, because we practice the very same things. It's really easy to deceive ourselves. I'll never forget one time when I was kind of learning to preach and I would take every opportunity that someone offered me to preach. And so I would preach at baseball chapels and I would preach at funeral homes and I would preach at nursing homes and I would preach at little churches and I would just preach anywhere that someone would ask me to preach. And one time I got asked to preach up at a little church in the Tano National Forest. And they had this double wide trailer. They had a missionary pastor who was on vacation. And so I somehow got called and they said, hey, you know, will you give our guy a break? And and preach. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And so I went up there, and there were about 20 or 30 people in this double-wide trailer. And uh, it was a small enough church that, that one of the things they did was they did like prayer requests and praise reports, right? You might do this in a small group where uh, if you're not a Christian, what that means is you talk about what's good and where you need help, right? So, so they would have an elder come up, and he came up, and he said, all right, if you have a praise report, if there's something good going on in your life, we want to thank God for that. If you have a prayer request, something bad, we want to pray for you. And if we did that in a church our size, it would you know, take the whole service. So we do that in small groups. But they did it as a whole church. And I, and I remember this lady in the corner saying, I just want to praise God because I have not sinned all week. And I thought, until now, <laughs> liar. Right? And I'm thinking, I don't, if this building gets struck by lightning, I, think, I don't think it can handle it. Like, we're all going down. Like, and, and yet she was fully convinced she hadn't sinned all week. Now, I didn't, I didn't know that lady, but I, I know that she's not Jesus, so that's wrong, right? She, she had sinned. But, but we, it's easy to deceive ourselves. We go, oh, I'm not like those people, and I don't sin in those big, bad, bold ways. So I'm fine. See, we like to minimize our sin. We, 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 we do this, and it's the way we deceive ourselves. This, this is why the Scripture says we need to encourage one another every day so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because we're deceived. We deceive ourselves. And so there's four ways that we minimize sin that I want to just mention here, and, and I want to apply these to those examples I started the message with. And so the first way that we minimize sin in ourselves is by defending. Well, I have a good reason. I have a good reason, right? So, so I know that I shouldn't text while I drive, and it drives me crazy that other people do that. But I have a good reason. I was late, and I needed to, which, sinner, you're late. <laughs> Kidding. But I was late. I needed to tell them, you know, and it would be unkind for me to not communicate that to them. And so I needed to do that. Okay. I'm not saying, I mean, the Bible nowhere says it's a sin to text and drive. But if you are condemning other people for that and doing the same thing, that's what Paul's talking about. And we defend it. I defended him myself. Well, you, you know, I have a good reason. Defending. The second way we minimize sin in ourselves is by blaming. It's not my fault. Right? I think about, you know, how, how, how frustrated I get when I see people speak harshly at their kids. And then, and then the times when you speak harshly, you know, I speak harshly at my kids. And, and, and you tend to go, well, they make me so angry. So whose fault is it? Theirs. Right? That's what, that's what you do. You minimize. It's not my fault. 
It's their fault, right? This is as old as the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, and God comes to Adam and says, dude, what happened? You know Adam's answer? The woman that you gave me. Right? That's, that's, that's how we do it. Right? And the reality is, um, Jesus said that out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouth speaks. And so it's not our kids' fault that we get angry with them. The kids just provide the environment to reveal the anger that's already there. It's like a science experiment, right? Our hearts are a crucible. If you, if you ever had a science class where you had this crucible and they'd put some object in it and, and turn on a Bunsen burner and it would heat it up and it would reveal the, the compounds that were in that material. And your heart is a Bunsen, or your heart's a crucible. Your kids are just the Bunsen burner. The, the circumstances of life are just heating it up. And it's revealing what's there. But we want to go, no, it's not my fault. It's their fault. It's her fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's my parents' fault. Society's fault. No, it's your fault. Got to own that. The third way we minimize sin in ourselves is by comparing. I'm better than most people. And I think about this with the hot weather and complaining. And, well, you know, some people, I mean, they really, like, everything they post on Facebook is just complaining. And I'm not like that. Yeah, but, but you condemn it in others and you do it yourself. And the standard that we're compared against is God and his holy perfection. Anything less than that deserves his wrath. So we compare. The fourth way that we minimize sin in ourselves is we downplay. Ah, it's not that bad. Not that big of a deal, right? Spending, spending money without really thinking about whether I have any money to spend not that bad. You know, I, I, I can make more. I can work extra. I can do other things. And it, it's okay. You know, I like nice things. It's just how I am. That's the best way to downplay sin is to just go, well, hey, hey, this is just how I am. It's how I've always been. It's just my personality. So what we're saying there is I've made peace with my sin. I, this is who I am. Instead of fighting our sin, hating our sin, seeing it as the thing that's keeping us from God, we decide to distance ourselves by God by saying, I don't have any, it's no big deal, it's just how I am. Do you see how deceitful sin can be? Right, and so Paul here, he, he's, get this, he's talking to religious non-Christians, people who think they know God who don't, but, but Christians struggle with the very same temptations, don't we? And so that's Paul's point. Listen, we're not better people. We're just forgiven people. But religious people often think they're better. And they build their identity on that. And that identity that they build, that I'm better, and there's nothing wrong with me, and I'm glad I'm not like them, that attitude is what keeps them from God. We judge others by their actions, ourselves by our intentions, but God is not fooled. Notice how God sees things. Look at verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Right, God sees all the sins of chapter 1, 29 through 31. He sees all that, says guilty, deserves my punishment, deserves judgment. 
Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's doing this out of grace, but you don't even see that. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, that word means unrepentant, unwilling to acknowledge that God's right here and, and, and holding your ground and, and minimizing and defending and making excuses and blaming. That's impenitence. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Again, God's judgment is righteous. God sees things as they are. He sees irreligious people who are far from God because of their sin, and he judges it. And he also sees religious people who think they have right standing with God but are deceived because they never really are willing to own that they're as messed up as they are. And God sees that too. His judgment is righteous. And God will judge us, the scriptures indicate, according to the standard that we use against others. Francis Schaeffer was a pastor and an author, and and he described Romans 2 here, this particular section, as the invisible tape recorder. It's kind of like this. Imagine you had, uh, you know, a, a recording device wrapped around your neck, and it was just there all the time, and it recorded everything that you ever said in your whole life. Then the judgment comes, and here's kind of how this would work, is God would take that recording device, and he'd say, listen, I'm gonna be completely fair. I will simply judge you on the basis of everything that you've ever said should be the standards of human behavior. We'll play that back. And I'll just, it's just what you think should be right. Uh Uh-oh. Right? That's Paul's point. God is not fooled. God sees this. God will judge this. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of this warning, in the midst of this threat that you might be so deceived that while you think you're doing good religious things, you're actually storing up wrath for yourself, you could be so deceived about that. And yet in the midst of that, there's good news. In the midst of that, it says in verse 4, that God is rich in kindness, forbearance, and patience. So the question is, the question that's left here, that, that Paul's asking is, Will you be presumptuous or will you be repentant? Presumptuous means it's okay. Look at verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Here's what he's saying. He's saying irreligious people, they sin in part because they, they don't even know what God's like. They just do whatever they want. But religious people, they know enough about God to go, hey, God's kind. God's patient. God's forgiving. God will forgive me. It's fine. I I don't need to fight this. This is just who I am. It's no big deal. It's really my parents' fault. But God will forgive me. That's presuming. Now, Now, notice this. Paul doesn't disagree that God is kind and forbearing and patient, right? He doesn't say, you think God's kind, but he's not. That's not what he says. He says, no, God is is kind, is forbearing, is patient. In fact, so much so that these are his riches. God is overflowing with this kind of kindness. 
But this kindness, rather than you beginning to use it as an excuse to just dig in your heels and, and be the way you are and keep sinning with your pride, and instead of that, this, this kindness, it says in verse 4, is meant to lead you to repentance. Repentance is turning from sin towards God. What it's saying is that we are walking toward sin. Some of us very boldly in a chapter one style. Some of us very kind of deceived in a chapter two style, but we're walking towards sin. And what this passage is designed to do is to expose us to the truth and to cause us to repent, turn around, and go to Jesus. That's what repentance is. So will you be presumptuous? I'm okay. I'm a good person. I'm not like them. Or will you be repentant? You know what? God, you're right. See, confessing sin, which is all part of repentance, confessing sin is not informing God of things he didn't know. Or you've never confessed a sin and God was like, you did what? Confessing sin is simply agreeing with God about what he already knows. So that's what confession is. That's what repentance is. That's how you actually draw near to God. And so the question that some of you may have, because some of you are going, well, so Paul's talking to religious people who aren't actually Christians, but they think they are. Some of you may be going, how do I know if I'm really a Christian? And if you're asking that, that's a really important question. And, and what this passage would say is, do you feel broken over your sin? Or do you feel kind of like, eh, whatever, no biggie. God, God's kind. If you're in that second category, I think Paul's saying, you might be one of these religious people that think you're okay, but you're actually storing up God's wrath. And here's what's so sad about this is that the freedom and joy that God offers is only found for those who will confess their sin. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and just. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. He'll make you free. But so motivated by pride, so motivated by wanting to appear right to others, and, or even in my own mind, I am okay. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. Right? That kind of attitude keeps people from experiencing real joy, real freedom, real delight in God. So this would be an appropriate time for us to examine ourselves, especially those of you who would consider yourself spiritual people, moral people, religious people. Examine yourself. Do you have a brokenness over your sin? Does it grieve you that you do the very things you know are wrong? Or do you just go, well, it's who I am. No big deal. <laughs> Luke, man, you're giving a lot of time to this. You're really overreacting. Well, the warning here is that you might be storing up wrath of a God who knows the truth. And I would be unfaithful as a pastor if I didn't warn you 
and ask you to examine yourself. Now, many of you, I know, will, will examine yourself, and you will find, yeah, I do hate my sin. I don't like this. I don't want to do this. And uh, it's there, and, and it's ugly. And there's hope for you. In fact, you're the only people there's hope for. Because if you're willing to confess that and go to him and ask God on the basis of his son's perfect sacrifice to apply his grace to you in a fresh way, you can continually be renewed in the grace of the gospel. Will you be presumptuous or repentant? Let's pray. God, thank you for, again, being willing to give us bad news in order to make our hearts ready for good news. And God, sin is so deceitful that it allows us even at times to deceive ourselves when there are things that we would condemn in others that we give ourselves a pass. And, and God, you know the difference. And so, God, I pray now that we would have a tenderness of heart, that we would be sensitive to your spirit, that if there are areas where we condemn others and do the very same things, that you would grant us repentance, that you would use that kindness to lead us to turn from that sin. God, I can just imagine that today will be a, a day filled with many people experiencing freedom and joy in Christ. And God, for those who are going to dig their heels in and who are going to say, ah, this doesn't apply to me, I'm okay. God, would you just oppress them by your spirit until they surrender to the truth of your word. We pray that in Jesus' name.